talking late last night about how it felt like I hadn't been up here preaching in what seems like forever. It really, it really has felt like a really, really long time. And as we were talking about it, there's been a lot of life for us since I was last up here. I think five weeks ago, six weeks, something along those lines. I mean, we've been under contract with two separate houses. Three? Three? Made offer on three houses, then a contract with two. Not under contract with anything at the moment. Um, We've been on our honeymoon 11 months later, where we were laid on a beach for a full week. Um, we've We've actually had our one year anniversary. There's been two girls living in our house that's changed a lot of different things in a lot of different ways. And it just seems like everything has changed really drastically. It seems like just that it's been forever since I've been up here. Uh, I'm really excited to preach the last CRC Matthew sermon ever. They will never going to touch Matthew ever again, I'm sure. Um, totally false. Um, that's not at all accurate. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we're going to jump into Matthew. Father, thank you for being so good to us. Uh, thank you that this that we have such a reason to worship. That, that you've given us words to sing. You've given us your words to read. That, that you've just done so much that, that we see, but then so much that, that we can't even comprehend. Thank you for giving us a building to to gather and to worship corporately and to to spend time as your church. Uh, Thank you that that you continue to to bring the exact people here, whether large in number, small in number, that that you have the people here that you want to be here. That's what we continue to see, Father. And I just pray that that you would speak to us um, through your word, that it be your spirit moving today, that, that you might use my imperfect, broken words to, to just proclaim a beautiful gospel truth, that, the fact that, that you have accomplished it all on our behalf, that, that there is nothing that we could do to somehow keep a law or to, to, to just to do better ourselves. Um, thank you for Jesus. Father, I just pray that, that Jesus, that, 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 that's what, that, that he be made just much of today, that we would see and worship and understand and worship and believe and worship you as worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. So I said we're going to start in Matthew 5. We're going to be um, kind of bouncing all over the place today. Um, all through Matthew, what we've seen, and Tanner and I have both mentioned this numerous times, specifically in the first probably third of Matthew, but we've seen it also throughout the entirety of Matthew, is that we said that Jesus was continuing to say, look, it's not about the external actions. It's not about just this external obedience to any sort of law, any sort of Old Testament um, law, routine, sacrifice, that it wasn't just wasn't just focused on those external things, but we kept saying the one thing, that God wants our hearts. He wants to to radically change our hearts, that he wants to make our hearts new. 
I feel like I said that for probably eight or ten sermons in a row, was God wants your hearts. He wants your hearts. He doesn't just want this external sacrifice or external obedience. And that's exactly what I'm going to say again today. Uh, hopefully this, this big idea that we can wrap our minds around and just understand is that, that God did give the Old Testament law. He, he, he gave the law and it perfectly fulfilled his desires. It, it displayed his desires. It displayed his holiness, his perfect standard. But that ultimately it, it pointed towards Jesus, that every single word, every single prophecy, every single law was, was pointing forward to Jesus, to the one who would come and ultimately save us. And that's what I'm going to try to say multiple times today, probably be very redundant, but I hopefully it's redundant in a good way, um, that it's, even if it's a little discombobulated, that, that we can all kind of center ourselves on that one idea that Jesus came fulfilling the law and not getting rid of it, but fulfilling the law and doing what we could not. Way back in Matthew um, 5, but way back in March of 2016, on Easter of 2016, Tanner actually preached this um, from Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Seems like forever ago, that's when we were in Matthew 5, Easter of last year. Um, I'm going to go ahead and, and read this, um, just to kind of get us started. This is Jesus saying, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches other to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I feel like a little reminder might be needed that this is very much at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, that not much has happened before he has said this, that he's been baptized, he's been out in the desert to be tempted. He's come back, he started to, to teach and to preach and to do... Um, and to heal and do lots of things. And he's gathered a very large crowd. This large crowd has followed him. He goes up on the mountain, sits down, and turns to preach and, and teach. This is what we would refer, this is what we refer to as the, the, the Sermon on the Mount. I went back and counted, and we spent 18 Sunday mornings in the Sermon on the Mount. 18 weeks we spent teaching through this one large teaching section by Jesus. But do you remember how it started? starts with the Beatitudes where Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. The meek. And right away it became very evident that Jesus was preaching a very different message than the Jews of the time, the people of the time would have been hearing from the scribes and the Pharisees. It was, very, it was radically different using the same Old Testament scriptures but, but he had a very different interpretation of them. Okay, kind of like to try to grab where Tanner was last week. He, Jesus was continuing to show himself as not the Savior they necessarily wanted or the Savior or the Messiah that they thought they needed, but he was proving to be the Messiah that they actually needed, the one that would come to save them from their biggest need. 
But he's using the same scripture. He's using the Old Testament scripture that says, that gives the law, that gives Jesus' commands. But he's pointing back to them saying, if you would have properly understood these, if you would, if you would understand the real meaning of these, then you would also understand who I am. You would understand why I've actually come, not just for this political salvation, all these things that they were after. That's why here in Matthew 5, 17, 5, 17 through 20, Jesus makes it very clear that he is not coming to abolish the law, that he's actually, that he's coming to fulfill the law. He's not trying to throw it away. He's not trying to minimize it. But that he's coming to fulfill it, that the ultimate fulfillment of the law is found in Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. And, we're gonna, and, he, and he starts pointing back to all these things throughout the Old Testament that shows that it's really all pointing towards Jesus. If, if, you, do, if you are taking notes for some reason and you want to write down a first point, that would probably be a good one. That, that all the Old Testament, that all the prophets, that all of it was all pointing forward to Jesus. Even the parts we don't quite understand, all of it was pointing forward to Jesus and having fulfillment in Jesus. But what we see when we See, the Old Testament law is, is God's desires, his, his perfect standard. We see His holiness. But it was also, it was given knowing that we could not meet it. It was given as a standard, as a, as a law based on God's holiness, given knowing that, that we could not meet it. So, as Brennan and I try to learn this whole parenting thing, um, we, we very quickly realize the importance of setting goals that are attainable, setting goals that are realistic, that they see as, oh, I might be able to accomplish that. Because we realize if, they, if it seems unreachable, if it seems like they can't attain it, usually there's a fit, crying, and they just don't even bother trying, specifically when it comes to mealtime. But we've seen that they're, they're giving goals that are attainable. Their, their preschool teacher gave them a goal last week of basically sitting down when being told. I don't know exactly how they do it, but that was the goal. One of them met the goal, well, the other one did not. Seems pretty realistic, and if you know the two of them, you'll probably be able to guess which one actually met the goal. Um, but it seems like a simple goal because it was attainable. It was one they could reach. But, but is this what God is doing? It seems like he's doing the opposite. It seems like he's setting aside a goal, a, a law, a standard that man, the creation that we cannot meet. And I feel like in, in parenting, that would be extremely unfair to continue to set aside this, this standard, to set aside something that, that they can't reach. But I, I, that's not the case um, with the law, with the way that God is doing this. Because for him to set a goal, I, say, I keep saying a goal, as for him to set the law, his perfect standard, anything, as anything less, would make him less than God, would, would make him less than perfect, would make him less than holy. But you see, in him setting this, that we cannot reach, that we cannot fulfill ourselves, that leads straight to the gospel. That is what leads straight to Jesus. 
Because Jesus in his death, in his resurrection, accomplished everything that we could not in fulfilling the law. That is why he said, I came as the fulfillment. I came to fulfill this. Not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. What we couldn't meet, he did. Because the law would set aside, there's this chasm, there's this divide. There's been lots of Christian analogies that have been saying there's a divide, there's a chasm, there's this, there's this distance between God's holiness, His perfection, His standard, and our sinfulness, our, our desires. But that Jesus truly is the answer to all of that. I know that's often, that's like, what's the answer? Jesus is the answer. That's a very Sunday school type of answer, but it's absolutely true that all of this, that the fulfillment of the law, our righteousness there is all Jesus. So we're going to have story time here for a second. Um, I love the Jesus Storybook Bible. I've, I know I've said this before. I think it's just awesome in the way that every single story, every single part of it ends up saying, pointing to Jesus, saying, look at Jesus, look at the one to come. And so what I want to do is we're going to have story time. But this is the response in the Jesus story of the Bible in this telling of the people's response to the law, of God giving them the law. And this is the people's response. I just love it. Bear with me where you guys can see the pictures. So Moses says to them, Will you love him and keep these rules? The people say, Yes, we can do it. Yes, we promise. But they were wrong. They couldn't do it. No matter how hard they tried, they could never keep God's rules all the time. And God knew they couldn't, and he wanted them to know it too. Only one person could keep all the rules, and many years later, God would send him to stand in their place and be perfect for them. Only because the rules couldn't save them, only God could save them. God, I love it. So I wasn't going to try to say that in my own words. That's just too good. Too good. But really, like, there, we can't be perfect, but Jesus was perfect for us. He was the fulfillment of the law. He came so that we would have no other boast. That he would be our only boast. He would be our only claim to anything. Like, do we understand this? That he is our only boast. That the whole Old Testament law is fulfilled in Jesus. That we cannot do it. Because if we truly believe this, if we actually believe this, then any sort of treating our Christian life, our Christian walk as this checklist of things that we have to do, all these external obedience actions that we fall into over and over and over again, then we're going to stop trying to say, okay, God, look, I'm going to church all the time. I'm reading my Bible all the time. I'm doing these type of things. Look at all these external actions I'm doing. Like, God wants nothing to do with our checklist. He wants nothing to do with our trying to please Him with our actions. Because Jesus is our only boast. He is the fulfillment, not any sort of checklist. But that's, that's the way the Pharisees were teaching. That's what they had been teaching. We saw this multiple times as we walked through Matthew, of Jesus' encounters with the Pharisees, with them, and, and he was saying, like, look at what they're teaching. That's not right. 
I was going to read all of Matthew 23, but um, I'm not actually going to read it where Jesus was saying, woe to you, Pharisees, woe to you, woe to you. There was a whole long chapter about the ways that they were teaching things. But they're teaching this, this salvation that, that they're able to play a part in. That look what you have to do. You have to follow our rules. You have to follow the rules that we're putting on top of the rules. You have to follow these laws, these, this tradition of the elders that we saw Jesus and his disciples um, kind of ba um, bashing heads with these Pharisees as they're saying, you're not keeping track, you're not obeying our traditions. And Jesus is saying, like, traditions, God's law, God's standards, like, they're all sorts of confused and they're teaching this salvation that is not based on the gospel, not based on God saving, but on them accomplishing Listen to me. There is nothing that we can do to somehow make God love us more. There's nothing that we can do to somehow show God that, look, you saved us. And this is why, because look at what we're doing. Like, I wrote down some examples. Like, God doesn't love us because you read your allotted three chapters in your Bible reading plan. He doesn't love you because you went to church three weeks in a row. He doesn't love you because you, you gave X amount of dollars or you did this amount of good works. But there's nothing that we can do to cause God to love us more. Like, we should pray. We should read a Bible. We should go to church. There's all sorts of things that, that will result, but nothing that we can do can give us this, this better standing before God or, or cause him to somehow love us more. Because Jesus said in Matthew 19, I don't think I put this on here, but in Matthew 19, in response to the rich young ruler, as his disciples and, and Jesus began to talk about that encounter, regarding salvation, Jesus specifically says, with man, this is impossible. With man, this is impossible. And if we think we somehow are, are adding to that, or adding to our salvation, or adding to our holiness, or adding to it with anything we're doing, then we're missing it. But I think instead of clinging to the Old Testament law, I think that modern day, I think that we are quick to do that with, other, with others of Jesus' commands about you name it. Like reading the Bible. With, with praying. We take, we take Paul's, Paul's words where he says, pray without ceasing. To think that, man, if I'm doing anything less than that, then obviously I'm not doing enough. We, we take things from the New Testament and to claim that we're not following the Old Testament law, but we treat it the same way. I want to switch gears just for a second. We'll come back. Back in Matthew 5, which I hope you guys should be still, still be there, um, Jesus was pointing towards Old Testament and saying, this is what, I, this is what it actually meant. It was, I wasn't, the law wasn't given just so you wouldn't murder someone. Because Jesus compares murder with anger, with hate. He says, same thing. 
He says it's not just about physical adultery, but if you lust in your heart, same thing. Because external obedience to the law was never the goal. That was never what the law was designed to do. It's how, it's how many people, I don't want to keep saying Pharisees, how people of the day, our day, it's how many people take commands in the Bible. That's well, We just got to do the right things. It's about external obedience. But that's not what it's about, and hopefully you've heard me say this a couple times by now. It's not about external obedience. That's not what the Bible is about. Tanner, I, th- I think, read from Psalm 51 last week, maybe, a couple weeks ago. Recently, we read from Psalm 51, and we're going to read there. Point being, we're going to be in Psalm 51 for a second. So if you want to flip over there, please do. Psalm 51 is a well-known psalm. Basically, this is David's response to being confronted about his sin with Bathsheba, his adultery. And Psalm 51 is his response. Listen to, what he, listen to what he says. This is in verse 16 and 17. This is David speaking to God. He says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. Because his sin that he had committed... At that point, it should have meant a sacrifice. should have meant he would have to go and sacrifice to make atonement for that. But he knows that David's saying, it's not just about that. That's not what you want, God. David knew it was a heart issue. He, the, the heart change was what was needed. Because I think, this example are not many times, but the Old Testament, they become so numb to the sacrificial system that it was just... Sin, well, I gotta go sacrifice. Sin, I gotta go sacrifice. Sin, I gotta go sacrifice. I've seen different people throw out the numbers of animals that were killed on a daily basis for sacrifices, and it's astronomical because it was just this numb routine that people had fallen into. That there was no heart change, there was no repentance, but it was just continued routine. But as this the same situation that we find ourselves in. Just trying to please God in our sin, but trying to please God with our external actions. Well, I, I fell into sin. I'm gonna, I need to go to church. I fell into sin. I, I need to make sure I read the Bible maybe six chapters tomorrow instead of my allotted three. I need to make sure I get my 30 minutes of prayer time tomorrow because I, I struggled today. I, I fell into sin today. But again, is it just some... Physical, routine, some thing like I have to do this, this, and this to still try to atone for my sin. And totally forgetting, totally neglecting the fact that Jesus has already paid that. And that nothing that we can do can add to that. Because the the sacrifice itself, even in Old Testament, that wasn't what pleased God. And that's what David is saying here. It wasn't supposed to just lead them to sacrifice. It was supposed to lead them to a desire for this desire for a Savior. 
This desire for Jesus that the whole Old Testament at this point had been pointing towards. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. It's not just course correction that he wants. It's not just, all right, well, I better do this, this, this different tomorrow so I don't sin. But it's a broken heart. It's a, it's a heart that just says, God, I, I, I need you. I need salvation. I need you to continue to change me. Because even in our brokenness, even in our, 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 our understanding of our sin to whatever degree, like that's where we should be led. That's where, that's where it should be like, Jesus, you're my only hope. God, I know I'm not righteous. I know there's nothing that I can claim or boast in other than Jesus because that's something that he has already paid. It's something that he has already done. But really, it's, it's the affections. It's the desires of our heart that the whole Old Testament was pointing at, was aiming at. And that's what God is after. He doesn't want a bunch of lip service, a bunch of churches who, a bunch of people that just are all doing these outward motions. This outward cycle of, of confession, repentance. It's not all just this outward thing. And if we would have read Matthew 23, which... Um, could have. Jesus compares the Pharisees to whitewashed tombs. Look all right on the outside. Look nice on the outside. Full of death on the inside. Death, decay. Because their hearts were dead. There was no good in them. There was, there was nothing except flailing around trying to please God with actions. But David, if you... If you're still in Psalm 51, you go up to verse 10. David understands, like, this is a hard issue. It's not just something that I'm going to correct. But David says, Create in me a new heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. He knew where the issue was, he knew what needed to be changed, and it wasn't actions. But it was his heart. But just because Jesus, we've seen, we've seen his life going through Matthew. We've seen his, his death, his resurrection. We've seen his ascension back to heaven. And his command that he gives to his disciples. To go and make disciples. To teach them, to baptize them. Our need for this, our need for heart change has not changed at all. has not changed at all. Like that is still our biggest need. Again, like what was the purpose of the law? To show God's perfect standard, his holy standard, his holy his perfect character. To show our inability, but to point to Jesus. But what did Jesus, this is actually, you can answer this if you want to. What, what did Jesus say was the greatest commandment? I heard somebody start. 
to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. I'm gonna actually, I'm going to read it here. It's in Matthew 22. But Jesus said, this is the greatest commandment when the Pharisees and Sadducees asked him about it. It's in Matthew 22. We're going to start in 36. Whoever said that? You've got it in front of you. Okay. They said, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like, is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the laws and the prophets. Basically, these two commandments can summarize the law. It was all to increase, to, to grow our love for God, which ultimately culminates in Jesus. But it was to love God, with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. It was never this external thing. I'm going to say it again. But it was a heart thing. Because if all you're doing is loving people externally, that becomes very evident very quickly. But even that, that love for God, love for others doesn't happen without a heart that's changed. It doesn't happen when we're still that natural person who loves the things of the world. Without God continuing to work in us, we don't have that love. Like throughout the New Testament, God would continue, Paul, well, God, through Paul and through other writers in the New Testament would say that, that you were dead he compares our hearts to being dead. Old Testament, stone. But we were dead without a new heart being given. Without being changed, we were dead. This is where the Pharisees were. Their actions were there. <coughs> but their hearts were dead. Alright, we're going to flip one more time. Flip over to Ezekiel 11. All through... Ezekiel, we see numerous times God saying, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to create something that was not there. I'm going to create a new heart in you that was not there. We see that in Ezekiel 37, this valley of, of dry bones that he speaks life into. And we see that multiple times in Ezekiel. But a little context here. The people of Israel were, were in captivity, were exiled, were out. And God is about to send them back in. And as he's sending them in, he says, and this is what I'm going to do as I send you back. This is what I'm going to do. It says in Ezekiel 11, 19, and 20. And I will give them, this is God speaking to Ezekiel, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and will give them a heart of flesh. That, big word, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Do you see the ordering of that? that there, isn't, there is no obedience, there is no following God, there is no obeying anything until after the heart change, after he 
does it. I will give them this new heart that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. Jesus died so that that might be our hope for God to give us that heart. He died so that we might not trust in the law. He, might not, that he died so that we might not trust in our obedience to save us, that we might not trust in us doing anything other than clinging to him. And even that, he clings to us because we don't even do that. Romans 10.4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Not, the end of the, not just the end of the law, not that the law is, is worthless now, but it's the end of the law for righteousness because our righteousness is not based on the law, but based solely on Jesus, the fact that he died for sin. That's all we got. That's all we need. That's why that that unattainable standard, the law that we could never meet, that is why it's so beautiful that that's there because it's, we get Jesus. We get Him who perfectly fulfilled it all and did that on our behalf. Are we still living as if we're under the law, though, as, as if we still have to do something? Once God has changed our hearts, we're gonna, the, the, that changed heart is going to overflow into a lot. We're going to love others. We're going to serve others. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to love well because God has given us a new heart. He has perfectly atoned. He has, he has perfectly met every requir- requirement for salvation. But if we'll stop trying to impress God with our obedience or with any external action, but we just say, Jesus, you really are our only hope. That our our one desire would be the greatest commandment, to, to, to love God and trust that he has done, met every other requirement. I'm going to summarize those words from the Jesus Storybook Bible again. I'm going to change the the words just to make it a little more present. But it says, only one person could keep all the rules. And many years ago, God did send him to stand in our place to be perfect for us because the rules couldn't save us. Only God could save us. Like if the fact that Jesus died for you does not excite you to the point where you want to respond in worship, man, like that should excite us. That should, we should be super excited that 
I don't, excited isn't even the right word. Wait, inexpressible joy is what I said on Easter, as Peter writes. There's inexpressible joy at the fact, at the fact that Jesus met every requirement for salvation, that he fulfilled the entire law on our behalf so that we could live this life of worship. We could live a life of being saved, of, of being made new. And I'm going to pray. But as I pray, what I want you to do is also is pray. And a very trendy word amongst the church right now, or trendy phrase, is stir your affections for Jesus. Let your affections be, be stirred. But that's what we need. Like, we need God to stir our affections, to make us love him more. I think it's a popular way to say things because it's really, really accurate. Pray that God would do that, that he would grow a love within you for him. It's not something we muster up, but it's something that we respond to what he has done. Pray with me.